Hey folks, this is Mike from the Battles of the First World War podcast. I am delighted to host this next conversation and that this stunning list of guests has made time to come on the show. In our discussion episodes, we have begun an ongoing series of talks on the French army and, ex and its experiences in World War I. Those talks have been really popular with listeners, and we certainly plan to produce more. So in the same vein, uh, I'd like to begin a conversation on the British Army and the British Expeditionary Force in World War I and its experiences. So I was provided a review copy of uh, Helion's title, The Darkest Year, the British Army on the Western Front in 1917. And it is an excellent book, folks. As with most Helion and Company books, this book is physically heavy and dense, and, and it's just stunning. Um, but I think that denotes the level of knowledge, research, and analysis that has gone into and is within this book. If you are a seasoned World War I and BEF reader and ready to get really nerdy, this is the book for you. And as it turns out, it is actually one of the books as it's part of a series uh, that we'll talk about more shortly. So an alternate title for this episode could have been... Um, an Englishman and four Americans, which I'm sure there's a there's like a dad joke in there somewhere, but I don't uh, <laughs> I, I don't have it. Um, we could have called it a, a deep dive into the BEF, but you know we'll we'll keep it classy. So joining us on the podcast to talk about their contributions to the darkest year are Dr. Spencer Jones coming on the podcast for the first time, which is very exciting. Dr. Jones is quote an award winning historian and author. He is senior lecturer in armed forces and war studies at the University of Wolverhampton and serves as the regimental historian for the Royal Regiment of Artillery, end quote. Dr. Jones' works are currently as follows, From Boer War to World War, Tactical Reform of the British Army, 1902 to 1914, Stemming the Tide, Officers and Leadership in the British Expeditionary Force in 1914, Courage Without Glory, the British Army on the Western Front, 1915, and at all costs, the British Army on the Western Front, 1916. Dr. Jones is also the editor of The Darkest Year. Also joining us for the first time is Alexander Falbo Wild. Alexander is, quote, a historian, researcher, and professional military educator based in Baltimore, Maryland, end quote. His areas of focus are organizational culture, military operations, media, and combat motivation. His works include the U.S. Center of Military History's World War I monograph titled Supporting Allied Offensives, 8th August through 11th November 1918, co-authored with Paul Cora, and Rising to the Occasion, the U.S. Army and the World Wars, 1900 through 1945, which was featured in Matthias Strohn's work, How Armies Grow. Currently a PhD student at Temple University, Alexander has also worked with the U.S. Marine Corps, the British Army's Education and Training Service, Canadian Forces College, and the Maryland National Guard's Office of the Command Historian. The next two gentlemen are returning guests on the podcast. And first up is Dr. Michael LeCicero. Dr. LeCicero is, quote, an independent scholar and Helion and Company publishing and series editor end quote. He is the author of chapters in the aforementioned Stemming the Tide, Courage Without Glory, and At All Costs. He has also 
co-edited Gallipoli, New Perspectives on the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, and Catholic General, the private wartime correspondence of Major General Sir Cecil Edward Pereira, 1914 through 1919. Dr. Le Cicero is also, of course, the author of the excellent book, A Moonlight Massacre, The Night Operation on the Passchendaele Ridge, 2nd December 1917, a discussion of which we had here on the podcast. And finally, also returning to the podcast is James Taub, Associate Curator at the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. James is the former Public Program Specialist at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. And he also worked as an Education Coordinator at the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission. James's interests in the Great War, quote, lie with the British, French, and American experience of 1914 through 1918, with particular focus on the average fighting man, end quote. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I very much, very much appreciate it. And we'll get right into it. Um, and we'll begin with, with uh, Dr. Jones, sir. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, the Darkest Year is the fourth in a series of books on the British Army and World War I. Um, what does the series aim to do? That's a really good question, Mike. Um, first, before I answer it, I'd just like to say thank you for inviting me on the podcast and also inviting three of my, um, and I hope they won't mind me saying this, three of the, um, the authors, three of the finest chapters within this collection. Obviously, I've worked with Michael before, but Alex and Jim were the first chapters. I hope they won't be the last for, uh, for future volumes. And as you say, mate, this is the fourth of a, of a series of volumes. <clears throat> and it's a little bit one of those projects that just began simply and then grew and grew and grew. So what does the series aim to do? Well, to, to explain that, I have to go back to the start. And the start of this is way back around about 2011, 2012. I actually forget the exact date. Uh, a chance meeting with the owner of Helion, Duncan Rogers, um, he, he contacted me to see if I had any books in, in the works. At the time, I didn't. And we had lunch together. And over this lunch, which I, I hesitate to say to the readers, was completely sober. There was no drinking involved in that sense. I, I pitched an idea about writing, a, um, or editing, I should say, a collection of essays about the men who commanded the British Army in 1914. And the idea behind that was to try and combine two of my favorite books when I was younger. One was John Terrain's The Retreat to Victory, or Mons the Retreat to Victory, which is about the 1914 campaign. And the other was edited by John Keegan. It's called Churchill's Generals. And it was a series of short, punchy essays about Churchill's Generals in the Second World War. And I thought, why not try and combine the two and do it about the 1914? <clears throat> and that produced Stemming the Tide, which is the very first, first of the series, 15 chapters about individual commanders at varying levels of the British Army, purely in 1914. It was a very steep learning curve. I'd never edited a book like that before. And as uh, one or two people said to me, normally when you start editing a book, you'd, you'd have a maximum of eight chapters. And that had 15. So we, we went big from day one. But it was a great experience. I genuinely enjoyed it. It was a fascinating research project. I got so much from it that the response to the authors was just astounding. Uh, it was a real pleasure to, to work with such a great team of scholars. And the book itself was a, was a success. It actually came run up for a national award in Britain, which is the Templar Medal, which is awarded for the best military book each year. And it came run up. Interestingly, it came second to a book that was written by my old PhD supervisor. 
So there was definitely some sort of, um, you know, <laughs> the gods were laughing in that one, that's for sure. Then, because it had been success, there was immediately, well, why don't we do one for 1915? Now, the problem was that the 1914 structure was all about officers. So if we did it in the same structure for 1915, there'd be a lot of repetition. You'd cover the same officers and so on. So instead, the 1915 volume, Courage Without Glory, broke the mold a little bit, and it was going to be 15 chapters about big themes and big ideas to do with the British Army and the Western Front. And that's what the series has been since. So both Courage Without Glory and At All Costs, from 15 and 16, with that, and so was Darkest Year, 17. And that's what the series is all about now. Thematic chapters about the British Army, purely on the Western Front, in a, a single year. And the what's the series trying to do? Well, it's trying to do two things. First of all, it's trying to really bring what I think some of the most cutting-edge scholarship to the question that, that can be brought to it. And in that, I'm, I've been incredibly lucky to work with, with such a great selection of contributors. And I think what, and this is, this is what I have, I hope nobody contradicts me <laughs> later on in the podcast, but what I think the, the structure does is it allows authors to really take deep dives into specific subjects because it's, it's bracketed by a single year. I'll often go to an author and say, I, you know, here's the subject, here's the year, is there anything that appeals to you? Is there anything in this that interests you? And of course, the feedback is tremendous. Um, I don't really put out chapters to order. Instead, it's, I like to think, well, what can an author cover? Might be a little steer, you know, if I know somebody's specialist in artillery, could you write an artillery specialist command, could you write a command? But otherwise, they've got freedom to write. And, so, and I think that as a, as a historian, we can all be a bit guilty of, oh, we're looking for the next big thing, you know, and, and discrete projects, because each chapter is 10,000 words, don't normally get a look in. So I think but with these books, there's an opportunity for historians to, to put out ideas they've been mulling for a while or take a real dive onto a subject that interests them. So there's that. And of course, for a reader, that gives you the absolute cutting edge of military thought and, or academic thought about military operations, which you just won't really find anywhere else. Yes, there's, there's great books. Yes, there's journal articles, but to get an entire a volume like this where you've got 15 separate contributors or 16 actually separate contributors for the darkest year, each with a separate chapter, I think is quite unusual. So there's that. And the second um, part of the objective of the series is because the books are very handsomely produced, they've got beautiful covers, we have an amazing map collection. So and because there's a range of chapters, I, I, I modestly hope that Yes, they, 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 that they might serve as a little bit of a, a gateway to really deep academic history for somebody who's interested in the war and has perhaps gone a little bit beyond um, just the introductory volumes, not to criticize those in any way, but they're looking something a bit deeper. They, they want really to dive into this. And some of the chapters are very, very dense. They're very detailed. But there's also other chapters that are perhaps a, a broader, a little bit more accessible. And I think it's a really good way to try and bring some cutting-edge academic history to a, to, to a wider audience. Now, I'm modest enough and, and sensible enough to know it's not going to be troubling the New York bestsellers list. But in academic terms, in terms of, of, of selling an academic volume, it sells really well. It's far better than, than a university opera um, book. And I think that as a series, that, that it's testament to the fact that there is an appetite for a very deep history, even amongst the general public. You don't need to be studying a master's degree or anything else for that matter, but dive into this and, and think, wow, you know, some of the depth here. Um, and I, I'm extremely proud of how the, how the series has gone. So that, I hope it's working. And, the, you know, if you're 
if you're listening and you've read the book, um, let me <laughs> do do drop me a line to bring some of the best historians that we can find working in this field to us, a somewhat wider audience, uh, and bring the two together. That's fantastic. Yeah, um, uh, Alexander and I were, were speaking before uh, before we started recording about how uh, what's really cool about these books is that like um, they they are um, accessible price wise um, so that, you know, um, a broader audience can, can get them. And, um, and, and there's nothing, certainly nothing wrong with introductory works. Um, and, and that's how you get people hooked. Um, but then like when you want to get into something really deep, um, I, I guess I would say like, like very meaty, like this is, this is like the way to go. So um, just based, I mean, myself personally, and I, and I hope everybody else listening to the podcast does it as well. Um, I've already gone out, and uh, picked up the other three. So yeah. in the series, so I'm I'm in. So I'm I'm in for the long haul. And uh, I'm I'm assuming there's going to be one on 1918 to to finish out the mm-hmm. series. So I I very much look forward to to that as well. Um, Excellent. So awesome, uh, Doctor Jones. So getting into the the darkest year, what is the theme for the darkest year? Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at the BEF in 1917 now on the Western Front, as you said. That's another really good question because all of the, the books have had a theme and so Stem in the Tide is, is about battle against the odds in 1914, Courage Without Glory about what a disastrous year 1915 is, all Cost about the sheer scale of the war in 1916. And then we come to the darkish year and the, the clues in the title that this is, that the theme of the book is that this is a really difficult year for the British Army. And it, it's difficult in, in a way that's different to, to 15 and 16. In 15, the Army is dogged by complete inexperience and chronic lack of equipment. In 16, the equipment's there, but the experience levels are still very low, and the German Army is at a, probably the height of its fighting power. At 17, you've got the, the BF is, is starting to reach its tactical peak, with the introduction of SS-143 and all the other training pamphlets that are going to make the BF look a lot like a modern army. Its equipment levels are becoming genuinely excellent. They're, they're surpassing the Germans in both quantity and quality on, on most, um, in most aspects. Not, of course, a continuous process. You know, there's, there's peaks and troughs, but they're generally getting a quality and quantity advantage equipment-wise. And yet, the year is still really difficult for the British Army. And there's, there's, there's several reasons for this. One is the British British Army's allies are in a weakened state. Uh, Russia, of course, is tumbling out the war throughout 1917. The French army is simply brought to a point of exhaustion. And uh, whether we describe this as a mutiny or as a, um, an industrial dispute or something in between, but the French army is incapable of major offensive action for most of 1917 after the Nouvelle Offensive. Still hold the line. It's not surrendering or anything, but it can't carry the, the work. The Italians, well, they, they, they fight quite bravely in 1917, but then, of course, they're crushed at Caporetto at the end of the year. And so the British Army has to shoulder, shoulder the burden of war. And that's very difficult. If you consider that in 16, the Central Powers absorbed the French, the British, the Russians, and the Italians more or less simultaneously across if you count Verdun and the Somme as separate fronts across four fronts, and the, the Germans could hold that, uh, Germans and the Austrians could hold it, suddenly you're asking the British Army to try and do what the four Allied powers could not in 16, in 17. And that's like putting a huge amount of pressure on the army. 
And I, I put it the dark shit too because of how it, it, it ends. And it ends, of course. And we're apt to forget this because we've all got the benefit of hindsight. We can look back on it. The end of 1917, it was not like, like the war is going to be won. The Russians are gone. The French, well, they're, they're not going to be ready for major action until whenever, mid-18. The British don't really know. The Italians have been crushed, completely crushed at Caporetto. And the British army is exhausted in a way that it's never exhausted before or since. The only time in the entire war, really, you can make a case for it at the end of 14, but um, that's a very small army. At the end of 17, the British army is tired and it's depressed. It's the, the, for the first time, there's a real sense of, of morale falling in the British army. It does recover in 18, but that's not clear at the end of 17. At the same time, on the home front as well, the mood is dark. There's a sense that the war is just going to go on forever. There can't be a decision. And you can see why. But by the end of 17, the Germans have, have created a huge land empire. They seem unassailable. You've British have had false storms at Cambrai. They've had the mud, uh, the mud and the blood at 30, setbacks at Arras and so on. And even William Robertson, who's the chief of the Imperial General Staff, one of Britain's greatest soldiers in, in many respects, the only man to go from private to field marshal in British Army history, even he reflects in his diary, and this is where the quote comes from, that this may be the darkest year of the war. And he's, in many ways, he's right. Uh, 1918 will be a different year, of course, but at the end of 17, very, very bleak for the Allies. Even with the Americans arriving, of course, because they're not going to be a major factor for months, and by then it might be too late. So that's the theme of it is, is the hardships of the British Army. And the complexity is that it's not a universal period of hardship. 1915 is. One struggles to find any glimmer of hope in 1915. 1917, there are glimmers of hope. Bray, Arras, even moments at 30 where the army's showing its skills and is winning its objectives. But none of them lead anywhere. They don't produce a strategic victory that, that the army is looking for. And that is the central theme, that the army is getting very good at fighting but it's not yet good at winning. And so that, that, that is this agonizing contrast that the, the, the army's got all the tools it needs now to win the war, but it, it can't quite put them together. Plus it's facing a formidable enemy, a very formidable force. The Germans might have been bloodied and battered by 60, but they're far from broken. They, they won't be broken until the uh, later part of 1918. So that's the theme. Difficulties, challenges, and, and in many ways, disappointments. And how has the army got there? What has it learned on the way? What are its flashes of, of brilliance? What are its, its skills? What's the army good at? What's it not so good at? And, and why ultimately does it not win the war or, or produce a strategic victory on the Western Front in 1917? One thing I just say about themes too is I never ever dictate the theme to the contributor. And something that has fascinated me is every volume I've done, a theme has just emerged from the end of the conglomeration of chapters and when I read them and edit them I think oh, that's it that, that's the theme it's, <laughs> it's coming out staring me in the face but it's quite that's a pleasure cool. actually to see that happen um, and this was the theme of, of, of Darkest Year difficulties setbacks false dawns really oh that's amazing how how like the theme just just emerges on its own from everybody contributing that's that's a really um, that's a really cool process <laughs> um, so in in the opening chapter you write about Lloyd George, the uh, prime minister, and, and British strategy on the Western Front. So what issues, so we're kind of moving into politics and military um, and, and the relationship between the two. 
what issues did uh, Lloyd George face and how did he plan to manage the BEF and the war itself? That's a really good question on a, uh, an aspect of the war, which I still think is a little bit understudied by, by British military historians. David Lloyd George is fascinating and at the same time maddening figure, You're a, a remarkable politician, a remarkable man, but a bit like a Greek uh, a figure from Greek myth. He's also a man with appalling flaws who's, who's caught up in all kinds of, of trouble. He's, he's corrupt. He's, he's got very, very weak moral compass when it comes to women. Um, he's, he's dishonest. He's absolutely dishonest in many respects. But he's also got talent. He's a tremendous organizer, a tremendous engine of ideas. And his role in the First World War is, is really, really important. And I think that, that as military historians, we tend to dismiss Lloyd George as a meddler and somebody who's constantly interfering with the, the British military operations for no tangible benefit. But in actual fact, I think the more one looks at Lloyd George, the more fascinating he becomes. He, had, he does have a good modern biography by John Grigg, but he hasn't really been studied as a military leader properly, except by George Cassar. Um, I think there's still great work to be done on, on Lloyd George's strategist and what constraints he operates under, which is what, what my chapter was about, really. And the two things to, to really drive home, I think, about Lloyd George as a strategist and the issues he faced. The first is that he's only just become prime minister in early in the 17th. He's, he's had the, an internal coup, for want of a better word, in December 1916. He's replaced Herbert Asquith. He's taken over. And Lloyd George's battle cry, if you will, is often said that the war's got to be fought to a knockout. And, and sometimes people, this means that he was looking for a decisive battle or a decisive blow. He wasn't. What he was actually saying was there can't be a compromise peace with Germany. We have to win this war, and it has to be a more or less total victory. And that was important for him to rally support around him, because Asquith had been criticised for a very hands-off approach to the war, which is, there's criticisms fair in many respects and for not prosecuting it as ruthlessly as possible. And Lloyd George became prime minister on a promise he was going to knock Germany out. He was going to use every weapon in his arsenal to do it. But the problem with that is, when he took over in early 17, the prospects for that looked quite good. The French uh, morale is, is quite high post-Verdun. <clears throat> the Americans will soon be involved in the war, though. He doesn't know it yet, but the German declaration of unrestricted submarine warfare is going to bring the Americans in. The Russians look quite strong. Um, at least as these observers are telling it, they have taken a lot of casualties, but they look okay. The Italians look quite strong. The British army is strengthening up, and it looks pretty good. The, the, the Allied situation looks, looks decent in the first week of February. And then it declines so spectacularly in such a short space of time. It, it's really quite remarkable. You have Zars abdication. <clears throat> you have the U-boats starting to really ravage Allied shipping. And of course, April 17th is going to be a disastrous month of Allied shipping, the worst um, tonnage losses of any month of either the First World War or the Second World War. You've got serious industrial unrest in Britain. And <clears throat> then you've had the Nouvelle Offensive, which um, brings the French army to a, a halt as a, an offensive uh, offensive force. And so in the space of under six months, Lloyd George has gone from a very promising strategic situation to one where suddenly Britain has to actually prop up the Allies and have to bear the brunt, have to keep attacking the Germans, keep them distracted because of the fear the Germans might turn their full force on the Russians, the French or the Italians. The British have to do something in between. And it completely upsets Lloyd George's ideas about managing the war. 
Lloyd George's ideas of management were quite consistent, in fact. Going right back to 1914, he's not enamoured with the idea of Britain fighting on the Western Front. He sees it as bloody, attritional, prolonged, and he's worried that, that Britain might shatter itself so badly that France and Russia then pick up the pieces and Britain might win the war but lose the peace. A fear that's shared by other British politicians at the time. And so Lloyd George is, is, is against really the British being the main body of, uh, the main fighting body on the Western Front. And in early 17, when everything's looking quite rosy, he's quite keen for the Italians of all people to be the, the ones who deliver the knockout blow. Lloyd George is drawn towards unorthodox solutions that defined his political career. And he sees the way to break the Germans is to, to fight through the Alps, end up in Austria, and then advance into what we might term, and indeed was termed in a later war, the soft underbelly of Germany. <clears throat> but of course, the, the sudden change of, our, of the situation by April 17th just completely throws these strategic calculations into a cock's hat. He was originally going to manage the BF in terms of having it fight in the Western Front, but alongside the French, got no faith in Douglas Haig as a supreme commander. And indeed, he'd really like to replace um, Douglas Haig if he could, but Haig's far too politically connected for Lloyd George to really get at him. Lloyd George does make a very, very poor intervention in early 1917. He tries to put uh, Haig under command of Robert Neville, the French commander. He handles it disastrously, and, and that's going to have long-term consequences uh, for, for Lloyd George and Haig's relationship. But his original plan is, is for the British and the French to fight side by side, but not in a Somme-style battle. He doesn't want attritional battles. And he's angling, really, for the Italians to be the main, the Italian front to be the main thrust uh, for the Allies' war effort. But, of course, by April 17, all that's off the table. And although he does revisit the Italian option through 17, he doesn't, he, it's not going to work. And it's removed from the table entirely uh, by late 17. So, in a way, um, Lloyd George is facing a succession of crises through 17. You can even play a sort of dastardly game and say, what, what is this month's crisis? Because from really from February onwards, February 17 onwards, Lloyd George is fighting fire strategically, constantly. Uh, and some of these are extremely serious. Although the book doesn't go into this in any depth, the, the U-boat campaign against Britain in early 17 is devastating and really does push Britain close to the edge. And, of course, you're in a position where the first lord of the Admiralty, or the head of the Admiralty, I should say, John Jellicoe, is saying, we can't win the war. Um, it's up to the army to clear the submarine bases. The Navy can't do it. And Lloyd George is managing a very difficult naval campaign. He's got a disastrous overall strategic picture, and he's trying to manage the British army at the same time. Um, he's, in a, he's in a tough spot. And when he's taken over in December 1916, of course, and this is something to really emphasize, Nobody could have predicted how badly the Allies' situation would be just six months later. And uh, uh, the fact that he's able to handle all this, um, not without mistakes, not without controversy, is, is pretty remarkable in itself. And it's a story I wanted to try and emphasize in my chapter. Um, oh, my God, yeah. So that that's that's just a whole new area of study there for myself to, to learn more about Lloyd George and, and, and about like um, British political leadership during, during the war. And, and like um, interesting and, and just seeing that Lloyd George, while, well, obviously a, a flawed person was in charge, was doing, seeming doing the best with, with what he had. And, and like you said, like nobody could have predicted that he he'd be constantly putting out fires. And, and I've, I've never thought about 1917, the, the way you just put it of like, 
how it was just one crisis after another, after another, after another. That's, that's wow. Like I, yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. And then, um, you know, like, like Russia's out, the Nivelle offensive crumbles, like, and then, um, up the, the battle of Arras is that, that effort kind of peters out and, and it's like, Oh my God, like what is happening here? You know? And, and the submarine, um, sinking all the, all of the shipping. Um, so Lloyd George did not have the control over the BEF that he, he wanted to have. Um, so how did personalities or events transpire mm-hmm. or perhaps even conspire to have something like the third battle of Ypres um, slip beyond his grasp of, of trying to manage the BEF? This, this is fascinating to me because, and in some ways it's what makes study of the First World War, perhaps any war so fascinating, that you have huge global events involving millions of men and women, incredible scale of the conflict and yet sometimes it can boil down to the interactions of just one two or perhaps three individuals and Lloyd George in 1917 and indeed a handful of other individuals are what really shaped how 30 developed and how it happened and the story of this to borrow John Terrain's excellent phrase is it's a study in inevitability it's like Lloyd George is clinging to a steep slope and he's slowly but surely sliding down it. And he, he knows that he doesn't want to go down the slope. He knows in his, in his heart that he thinks it's going to end really badly, but he can't do anything to stop it. And my goodness, he tries. There's, there's several things that influence Lloyd George's, or rather take away Lloyd George's ability to influence the, the build-up to 3rd the first is, as I mentioned before, in, in early 1917, Lloyd George makes a huge political misstep, which is, uh, he does make these in his career, but this one has got especially long-lasting consequences. When he, he essentially, he ambushes Douglas Haig and tries to put him under command of Robert Neville. And Lloyd George does it in a very poor way, very badly handled. It's a disaster, um, complete disaster, it totally sours relationship between not just Haig and Lloyd George, but also Lloyd George and William Robertson, who's the chief of the Imperial General Staff. They regard Lloyd George probably accurately as a slippery character, as somebody who's not to be trusted, that, that he's not got the army's interests at heart, that uh, he's, he's a chancer. There's certainly some truth in all these things. And Lloyd George is then placed in a difficult position where he knows the army is hostile to him. And crucially, William Robertson, personally hostile towards Lloyd George. The, the two men, in some ways, should have a lot in common. They both come from relatively humble backgrounds. They're both highly intelligent. They're unorthodox. They're problem solvers. They cut through difficulties and red tape. But there the similarities end because their personalities just rub each other up the wrong way. Lloyd George is outgoing. He's humble, lively. He's the life and soul of a party. He's full of jokes and optimism and energy, whereas William Robertson is gruff, friggish, very formal, um, not really a fun person to be around. Um, his nickname is the uh, uh, the refrigerator, and I think that gives you some idea about what type of person he is. And they just don't like each other. Um, Lloyd George has always solved political problems by charming his enemies. He's very, very good at that. He's a charming man. And he's always good at finding a middle ground. He can't do it with Robertson, because Robertson personally dislikes him. 
And that's a disaster for British civil-military relations because Robertson is actually, strategically, he's more inclined towards Lloyd George's view of the war than Hake. Robertson thinks the war should be fought step by step, uh, one bite at a time, slowly. He's actually trying to encourage Hague to fight that style of war. But at the same time, he's caught in uh, the horns of this dilemma because Hague is planning a big operation, 30. Robertson's subtly trying to say to him, I think you should try and rein in your ambitions. But at the same time, Robertson doesn't want to be seen to be supporting Lloyd George. And so in the end, Robertson gets caught on this awful dilemma. It basically breaks him morally and, and drives him to the, to the point of exhaustion, where he has to back the army, even though he doesn't believe in what the army is trying to do, because they do anything else is to support Lloyd George. So that's a serious problem, because Lloyd George has no in on the army. He's facing the United Front. The other problem is that the army has had just enough success to make 30 seem possible. By the time that Hague is proposing 30, you've had the first battle of the Scarf at the start of Arras, where the army's made the biggest advance in trench warfare began. You've had Messines Ridge, a successful and condensed and uh, um, carefully controlled operation. And Robertson is able to actually say to Lloyd George, look, we've had two great successes. A third is not beyond the bounds of possibility. And Lloyd George has no real answer uh, to that. And facing this united front, with an army that can say we've achieved success, plus with a strategic imperative that the army has to attack somewhere. It can't sit on the defensive. It's got to be carrying the offensive forward. That's all dragging Lloyd George towards this point. He's sliding down the slope and he's flailing about. He's trying to find points of opposition because in his heart, he thinks this is going to go the way of all of Hague's offensive. It's going to start reasonably promisingly and then it's going to turn into bloody attrition. Lloyd George does try and put a circuit breaker into this. Um, and he has written into his agreement to the Hague's plan that if it turns into a nutritional battle, it will be stopped. But it's already—it's immediately doomed the moment he puts it in because Douglas Hague is permanently optimistic. It's probably his greatest command for his overwhelming optimism. And he's always going to think the battle's going well. So there's no prospect of him saying, oh, it's become attritional, it's become difficult. And so Lloyd George is dragged into this really for three reasons. First of all, the, the, the army has to attack somewhere. The strategic situation demands action, and only the British army can deliver that action. Secondly, Douglas Haig's stock is probably the highest it's ever going to be. He's got the first part of Arras, and he's got Messines Ridge to say, look, the army can do this. It's, it's possible. Uh, thirdly, um, <clears throat> Robertson and uh, Lloyd George's relationship is completely sour, and Robertson will always promote the army in the face of Lloyd George. And fourth, I actually said there were three reasons, but the fourth reason is also the, the naval situation and the naval pressure. Now, the, the idea that, that Lloyd George approved this at the uh, 30 defences to clear the U-boat pens, um, and that was his main reason for doing so, has been overemphasized. It, it's a factor. It's certainly a factor, but it's not the dominant factor in this. Uh, but you've got the, all these factors are weighing on Lloyd George, and, and he's just drawn into it. He can't escape it. And my, my gosh, he tried. But the situation is just out of his control, and he, he cannot impose his own strategic vision on the war because of the, that rolling series of crises we've had. And he can't impose his vision on the, uh, on the army because Robertson will just block everything Lloyd George tries to do. Robertson's a good enough political insider to make it look like he's giving the most honest and upfront advice. And unfortunately, that, that failure of Lloyd George and Robertson to develop any kind of working relationship is, is a real problem. Uh, for the British Army uh, uh, and indeed the British war effort in 1917.
Wow. That's, and for, for folks listening to the podcast, like, um, this is just the first chapter in the book. So like that, that we just discussed. So this is, this is so awesome. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Jones. Um, thank you. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, so if, uh, I'd like to move to, uh, uh, Dr. Michael uh, LoCicero, um, and getting into now, like, so we, we've started here with, we're, with Dr. Jones, we've gotten an overview of, of the year, of, of the series of books, the year 1917, and, and the situation facing the, the British Army at, at the beginning of the year, and how things like um, went steadily down downhill, uh, Lloyd George along with them, uh, as, we, as we just saw. Um, but yeah. now, to get into something a little, I, I, I like the approach to this chapter that uh, Dr. Le Cicero took. Um, and his chapter in the book, The Darkest Year, is titled Discredit on Those Concerned, the German Trench Raid near Luce, 5 January 1917, and the Duty of Lying. So, so for folks listening, we are going from very broad to very <laughs> narrow, uh, specifically a a sector of the, the Western front right near the, the right near loose. Um, so Dr. Le Cicero, you're on your chapter. Why was this German trench raid on the 5th of January, 1917? Um, why was this event significant? Uh, well, I don't know whether it was significant to me because I found it interesting and I thought it was, I thought it was a, uh, a story that should be told. Uh, it's mentioned in a number of well-known interwar period First World War books. Uh, I guess um, the first one and the one that brought this raid to my attention was by a Irish, an Anglo-Irish officer who was in the Leinster Regiment in the same division as the battalion that was raided. Name was F.C. Hitchcock, Captain F.C. Hitchcock. And he wrote, uh, uh, well, his edited wartime diary was published in 1937, I believe. And the division that he was part of was the 24th, which is a new army division. And that they had fought on the Somme. And then after that, they were on Dini Ridge for a brief time. And then they were sent to the Loose Salient. And his description of his time there, the Loose Salient at that time was a very dangerous place. Uh, so for example, the 2nd Lannister Regiment, of which Hitchcock was part, lost more officers holding the trenches in the loose salient than they did on the Somme. And uh, the loose salient was a result of the Battle of Luce in 1915. The line barely changed there until the end of the war. And it's an area of coal fields and spoil heaps, which the French call crossiers, okay, that is sometimes both sides occupy, very unusual kind of, of front there. And in the winter of 1916-17, there was a, a, a large number of raids conducted by both sides, but the British in particular uh, were raided more than the enemy did, more than the Germans did. And to the point where Hitchcock, and he's not the only one that made this point, was that uh, sometimes the rating the rating was based on rivalries between divisions or brigades. You know, oh, the sixth division launched a raid last night. 
people have to do the same. And to the point of where it, it makes logical sense, although raids were quite important to identify the enemy opposite. It wasn't just, but it was felt sometimes that uh, by the rank and file that uh, there, so many raids were unnecessary. Uh, so this is the sector where this particular raid occurred. And uh, the raid itself was an embarrassment to British High Command and was mentioned uh, in passing in two other books. One, uh, a very important book called Disenchantment by C.E. Montague, who was a late middle-aged journalist who lied about his age in 1914 and enlisted, was wounded early on, and became a press officer at GHQ. And to his mind, the raid itself from the official communique uh, uh, that the British public were lied to about this particular raid and, 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 and what an embarrassment it was. The other one was the man, he was a battalion medical officer at that time, the battalion of the Royal Fusiliers, the first Royal Fusiliers, which is a regular battalion attached to this new army division, 24th. And he wrote a book called... Um, uh, it, it's Lord Moran, and it's the anatomy of courage. And Lord Moran, uh, the, the, in, the, in the subtitle of the chapter, The Duty of Lying, that comes from him. And uh, he also felt, as did Montague, that officialdom lied about the results of this raid. And you know, ultimately, in the larger in, in, in the larger picture, it's not particularly important. But they used it to illustrate how, in their mind, the public was deceived. But in reality, you know, that wasn't the case. Funny, you, you're talking about trench raids and how a lot of trench raids were, were launched um, out, of, out of interdivisional rivalries and within the BEF. Um, while, you know, that may seem lighthearted to us talking about it today for folks listening like trench raids were were of course they were they were very deadly business um they went on all the time um and they in a certain sense like they they had to go on like you constantly had to know what the enemy across um no man's land was was up to um and if you did know what he was up to you certainly wanted to disrupt him um so break up his wire attack kill his men take his take equipment take prisoners gain intelligence But but trench raids, one thing that sticks with me in, in learning to read about trench raids is that they tended to take the best men away, like that the best men would be killed on trench raids. And and now your your unit is down that um, that that efficiency because your best guys were lost on a raid last night. So, um, you know, and, and of course, a, a gentleman like the officer who wrote um, the, the book is called Stand, Stand To. Um, into a diary of the trenches, 1915, 1918. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's been reprinted. It's, I, I highly recommend it if you like, you know, diaries and memoirs of the war. And so Hitchcock wrote about this particular raid. Now, he didn't experience. So a lot of what he writes, and, uh, you know, uh, when I first read about it, I was fascinated. Maybe I'm going ahead of myself. But when talking about this particular raid, the Germans were able to penetrate deep into the British line and take 51 prisoners, and no one was aware of this. Back at brigade headquarters, back at division headquarters, and for that matter, interestingly enough, the neighboring battalion was holding the top of the loose crossier. So they would be able to see down 
into the trenches below 50, 60 feet. They would, and, and, and no one seems to have been aware of this for a number of reasons. Uh, and so what really uh, fascinated me and while I wanted the research is I was, I was briefly employed for a few months at the National Archives helping them with special progress in London mm-hmm. and uh, in Kew. Okay. And uh, I decided just because I had the time, I was an employee and I could stay late, you know, when, after they closed, that I'd look into this. And, but in Hitchcock's account, what happened was the divisional general, name was Capper, he was the brother of the famous Tommy Capper, still in 1940. Uh, John Capper, I believe. Am I right about that, Spencer? I think that that was it. Uh, he received word that the Germans had announced that there was a raid in the loose sector, and they took 50 prisoners. And he was puzzled by this because, you know, this is after the raid. Uh, he hadn't heard anything about it. So he telephoned all the brigadiers. No one knew anything. So he decided to take a tour of the line. And he started one end of the front of, of, of his sector and they right to the other. And uh, he was joined by the battalion commanders. And they got to a point. The battalion that was raided was the 8th Buffs, the East Kent Regiment, a new army battalion that had a really good reputation. It was, you know, an ordinary service battalion, but it had a good reputation. And so he joined a battalion commander at brigade headquarters in Anna line, and they got to a point where the Germans had built a block, a, a, a bomb stop, sandbags to block off the trench. Mm-hmm. And the trench was completely empty. The front line trench is completely empty. So they, according to Hitchcock, they peered over the top, and they looked in, and there was a dead man laying. So they, you know, they negotiated the the the, the, the bomb stop, and the trench was empty, and as far back as to where Australian miners were operating. It was an Australian tunneling company operating in the area. It was completely empty. Uh, so the story goes. And so Capper uh, carefully, in, back in the front line, peered over the top of the parapet. And I always say, never let it be said that the Germans don't have a sense of humor. Because there was a sign in the barbed wire. And it said, say, what about those 50 rations? So the Germans were having a, you know, uh, they were taunting the enemy about the success that they had. And I thought, well, now how could this have happened? And what happened? And, and Hitchcock speculates that the raid itself, that the, the German regiment involved, was the 153rd Infantry Regiment. It's a pre-war regular regiment. They were part of the 8th German Division. And he speculated that it was happenstance, that the Germans had a patrol out, and they snaffled some outposts in no means, that they were saps, and they were connected to the front line. And that they snaffled these prisoners, uh, these sentries, and they took them away. And uh, they used those saps as an avenue of approach, which is what I believed for the longest time until I started researching it. And I discovered that in actuality, it was a carefully planned raid. They did it all by the numbers. You know, they did their due diligence of reconnaissance and wire cutting. They trained in the back areas on the dummy trench system. And then it was launched. And they did a very clever thing, the Germans, to uh, uh, trench mortars and rifle grenades were the biggest killers in the loose sound. Okay, very, very deadly. Okay, Grenatenwerfer uh, shells in particular, which did, I think, for two of the three officers that died at this time in the Lannister Regiment. And uh, they were concerned about the fact that 
Well, to deceive the sentries in the outpost in front of the British line so that they could get in, they decided to run some shallow mines near the British position. And what they were concerned about was is that, for instance, if they used the Minenwerfers, if they used you know, the trench mortars, uh, uh, they might hit the raiding part, who would be fairly close up. So they had it, they had um, pioneers dig these shallow mines, and the mines would be a substitute for what the center, British sentries would think would be a Minenwerfer barrage, and they would take cover. And so by and, and this worked perfectly, and they were able to get into the enemy line uh, by using a uh, something that I, 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 I'm going ahead of myself here. My hypothesis: This is one of the questions, but of uh, the 153er method is what they called it. So, yeah, that's what that's what I wanted to ask you. Was um, the next thing we had was was the unit? Of course, the the German unit involved in the raid was the. Um, IR-153, the 153rd Infantry Regiment, and, and they were known. And in fact, they, they were known for their so-called 153rds method. Now, question I had for you was, was the 153rds method, was it a result of developing Sturmtruppen tactics, uh, tactics or um, did it develop in, in parallel at, at the same time? Yes. It, 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 as far as I can ascertain, it was in parallel. Because, I mean, you know, the regimental, the regimental history is, you know, it, it, it's very boastful. Uh, I think that there was one passage where uh, um, uh, the call in the regiment, because, you know, the high command knew, you know, that they never failed, that they always got the job done. But it seems to me it was developed in parallel. They had their ideas about rating. And so, for instance, in the organization, what was being trained across the German army, you know, in late 15 and early 16. Certainly they seem to have taken that in, but, you know, they added their own methods. Uh, uh, the organization as to how many men, you know, uh, uh, what weapons they would carry very slightly from, as far as I can ascertain anyway, uh, across the German army at that time. But they were, but you know, they were quite effective readers, and uh, you know, and 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 they took on this challenge, and and they were very successful, and uh, in the end, uh, following the raid, the brigadier who commanded uh, um, um, the brigade and the battalion commander were both relieved of their commands, and one of them went on to make a name for himself in North Russia in 1919, but the uh, the battalion commander. Uh, was it became a, a training officer at home, and he remained there for the rest of the He never returned to the Western Front. So it cost these it cost these men this, their jobs, and uh, the battalion, interestingly enough, the Eighth Bus. Uh, the expectation for them was is that they would take part in a raid. And see, this this was the, the sort of tit for tat warfare that was going on at that. Right. You know, uh, uh, I, I in one of the one of the officers. Diaries unpublished that I utilized for this particular chapter. Um, uh, he said that General Capper had an inspection and mildly chastised them for letting the Germans raid them. But uh, uh, but they were expected to carry a raid. They they did it in conjunction with another battalion. And although it was quite costly, you know, they took a number of prison and prisoners and 
you know, they were able to inflict some damage onto the German lines before they returned. So these were, were so this is some of the, the British reaction to the raid. Like two, two officers are, are relieved, the brigade commander, the battalion commander, the battalion commander never again serves on the Western Front. Um, and then the the eighth buffs, the unit that was raided by the Germans, their the expectation is that they raid back. Um, any any other um, British reactions, like even on a higher scale of like, like, hey, clearly there was miscommunication here, you know, like so- something broke, uh, you know, we can't let this happen again. General Henry Horn had just taken over the First Army and uh, in the documents that I found in the First Army files at the National Archive, he was very unhappy. And his chief of staff uh, made some notes. There were all kinds of questions that were asked. Why wasn't this done? It actually, in the response to this raid, uh, the British beefed up their defense. And in Hitchcock's diary, he shows something that he came up with himself, where just down a communication trench from the front line, a little side trench is dug, and a Lewis gun is placed there. The Lewis light machine gun, which can fire down into the trench, you know, should the Bosch get in. Um, uh, so uh, I would say in the, in, in the 153rd Regiment history, they admit that after this particular raid, that it became much more difficult to achieve the same kinds of success because, you know, they essentially say well, the British were on to us. And of course, with getting back to the 153rd, they were so confident of their method that they proposed to the German high command, in this case, it would have been the German Sixth Army, that uh, a number of raids deep into the British line, done simultaneously, could lead to a breakthrough. But of course, the high command wasn't interested in it at that time because they were going to rely on the U-boats to turn the tide of the war while they went on defensive in the West in early 1917. So it, it, you know, it, it, it fell on Deaf ears, essentially. It's probably shelled at Army headquarters, and that's probably about as far as it had gone. And then, finally, the question I had for you was, uh, how was the raid recalled decades later? I know there was, you, in the chapter you mentioned, a book written in the 40s during World War II that, that recalled this raid. Was that Anatomy of Courage? Anatomy of Courage, uh, well, you know, C. Montague's book is really important. Uh, um, uh, Hitchcock's book aside, that was where the general narrative I first became aware of. But C. Montague's book is important in the literature of the Great War in the United Kingdom because he'd been a press officer, as I said at GHQ, and he was one of the first books critical of how the war was conducted. And it was published in 1920. And it's only, I think, a sentence where he mentions it. He says... Most of the lies we told, you know, were, you know, fairly innocuous. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He says, for when the Germans raided us in the dead of night, you know, and took 51 prisoners and did as they liked for 40 minutes, which is true. Mm-hmm. For 40 minutes, they did pretty much as they wished. Uh, uh, and then he mentions the official communique. Moran is, writes much more about it. And it, where, what, you know, Moran has very much that disenchantment in view of the war. I think uh, Professor Stephen Bassett said they're like uh, people regretting their hangover after a drunken party. But, you know, and, and, and their belief was the truth about the war. Moran was one of those. Okay. And uh, 
he, as I said, he talks about uh, official line. Now, if you read the communique, as it went from GHQ, and they came in on a you know, daily basis about the fighting fronts, I don't really know much what, what, what more they could have said. I mean, you know, the raid itself is uh, uh, it, 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 the general narrative that they got in the trench line. They took some prisoners and they retreated and they suffered some casualties. Uh, um, interestingly, just a little bit farther down the page in the Times is the German communique about the exact same raid that goes into more detail. So any discerning citizen interested could see what the Germans were saying and it'd be up to them to decide, you know, who was telling the truth. But what Moran misses is that if he's talking about what they're being told in France, and he makes this broad claim that it affected morale and, it, and you know, uh, I, I'm dubious about that. And, I, and, I, and Stephen Babsy is an expert on, Professor Steve Babsy, I mentioned, is an expert on propaganda in the war. And we had a lengthy discussion about this years ago because I had this chapter in mind for many years. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, uh, um, uh, with this, it's, it's, it's boilerplate essentially. These kind of communiques and what they're going to write, and whether or not that that affected morale at the front is is dubious. In as much as the report the next day, for those who would see it, goes into detail about what happened, and they get it right. But in the first report, it wasn't clear what had happened. So you know, uh, it, uh, taking the disenchantment writers to task, and they 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 get it wrong in this particular case. I can understand why they pick it, but they don't take it beyond the first day when it isn't clear, you know, the fog of war and, 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 and the way the intelligence makes its way back to the line. Certainly by the following day, they had a pretty clear picture of what happened. Interestingly enough, the Australian tunneling off commander, uh, he has a very, there's a very detailed report about their experiences in the raid. And uh, it wasn't learned at the time. They didn't know at the time how the Germans entered. And so in his sketch, he shows them entering at one point, when in reality, they entered at two points. It was about, the German raiding party was about 200 men. And so they, uh, uh, um, uh, it, it, it really, I'm not certain about this. And, and certainly, you know, I'm not blowing my own horn here, but I don't think it's ever really been clear exactly what happened. What cleared up for me was the German regimental history uh, of the 100th. It, it was, it's an excellent history, very, very detailed. And they had a lot to say about it. Awesome. What a, what a, um, fascinating episode, like, um, really interesting how, um, just this one trench rate and, and how it shows like, um, like the, yeah, I, I took away from it. Like, um, like the, 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 the I mean, I, I don't know, like, like do we say failures of command, uh, like on, on the ground and like the, the battalion commander, like not making sure everything was, was in place as it should have been and being ready for, for an enemy raid. Like it's, you know, like we, I don't want to like Monday morning, uh, quarterback here. So, um, but it was just, just fascinating, a, a great insight in, into events happening all along the Western front. Like, um, in, in this stage of the war, the, the raiding and counter raiding going on. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Uh, Dr. Cicero. Um, as far as the the German humor, yes, there is a lot of that. Um, 
I just read something this morning that I'll, um, I'll, I'll share you, uh, I'll share with, with you gentlemen here because, um, you're a, a bit of a captive audience and my family doesn't want to hear any of it. So, um, but I, I was reading about, uh, the, the, uh, the AEF air service and the AEF had like one, one daylight bomber squadron that, uh, they unfortunately lost in one go, uh, because during San Miel, the San Miel operation, they, the weather was terrible and these like six bombers took off, um, into the clouds. They very quickly got lost. They followed their flight leader as best as they could. They were hopelessly lost and, uh, they eventually land near a city and that city turned out to be Koblenz, Germany, uh, according to the telling of it. Um, so they're, of course they're all taken prisoner and the, the Germans communicated back to the Americans like, Thanks so much for the equipment. Uh, we appreciate it. Like, but, uh, you know, quick, quick question for you is what, what, would, what do you want us to do with your major? And um, Billy Mitchell, who's the head of the American Air Service, said, um, yeah, it's, it's a good thing he's in Germany right now, let me tell you. So, <laughs> so that was like just that's just another sign of like that that humor. And again, that little episodes like that, like, my goodness, like you you know, you certainly don't see any news like that. That's quite brilliant. Uh, I have to say. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I thought it was a, I thought it was a good one. Um, so thank you for letting me share that. Uh, and uh, Alexander, actually we're, we're coming up uh, to, to your chapter here. Um, talking about the Royal Engineers at Arras. And I apologize. I've completely forgotten how to pronounce the, the chapter. Semper Ubique. Semper Ubique, okay. The Royal Engineers at Arras, 1917. So how did the Royal Engineers contribute to the BEF's early successes at Arras in April of 1917? Because as Dr. Jones said earlier, in, initially when the British started attacking at Arras, it, it was a, a great success and it was the biggest um, the biggest advance that, that had been seen on the Western Front up until that time since trench warfare had, had begun. Yeah, so I would say, uh, sir, first of all, thank you for uh, in inviting me on the program. Of course. Um, and uh, all the good work that you're doing uh, for the First World War, for First World War historiography and, and studies, um, promoting our work. And so to answer your question, I would say that they provided a vast network um, and a logistic, uh, logistical spearhead. Um, in, the, in my case, uh, I looked at 23 attacking British and Commonwealth divisions um uh through the first uh, and third armies on on z day of 9 april 1917 and you have uh roughly about forty three thousand sappers and pioneers so you have a royal engineer sappers but then there's also these uh, uh pioneers that are um infantry battalions that are converted for um uh as one historian put it um intelligent labor semi-skilled um, and very similar to our Pioneer Infantry Battalion concepts in the AEF uh, in 1918. Um, uh, to which I should say that my great-grandfather on my mother's side was one in the Meuse Argonne. So, uh, but to return, th essentially the Royal Engineers provide uh, a defensive, um, uh, or should I say, uh, uh, um, a mining subterranean network that allows them to conceal almost two full-strength British divisions um, um, and all the logistics and, and necessary provisions to be able to um, uh, escape German shelling and observation. 
um, in a very crowded sector. And, and, and in fact, the, the frontage uh, uh, between Eras itself and, and the front fire trenches is, is the shortest in the British line and one of the shortest in the Western Front. Eras is also very densely uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Traffic, it's 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 networks, its road networks are are um, provided constant traffic uh, irritation and jams uh, for uh, for lorries and and uh, troop transports. Um, so being able to uh, provide uh, these this defensive measure was uh, uh, their greatest success of mining, even over Messine as an offensive capability with you know blowing up saps and blowing up huge freighters. Um, uh, Aras was. Uh, 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 demonstrated the power of defensive mining, to quote the official historian, and he's quite right about that um, all these years later in his assessments. All right. So how did the the topography and the geography, uh, particular to Arras, how did help, that help the Royal Engineers um, just be so successful? Chalk. Chalky soil. There you go. Yep. Uh, the Artois, uh, the Artois region. Uh, so first off, the, the first, uh, the first world war is fascinating for a multitude of reasons, but it's geography is one of the things that really, uh, uh brought me into it. I mean, there's only recently in, in, in academia, environmental studies have become, have come into vogue in the last 10 years for a, a, a myriad of different, uh, subjects. Now the first world war recently, there was, a an environmental history published about it. Um, but the, the geography, the earth always has a story to tell. Um, and is as essential a character, um, including Aras, the city itself, uh, as any individuals. Um, and so the chalky soil of Aras uh, and Artois, although perforated with artesian wells, and sometimes so sometimes when you dig uh, just below um, the quaternary layer, you get um, uh, uh, well springs that can cause flooding. Don't worry, I won't get too technical, but that's what the chapter's for. Uh, but essentially, the 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 once you dig past that and you get uh, into the crustaceous layers below, uh, you know, um, as you're nearing sea level, um, the uh, uh, the galleries don't need supports. It just lends itself to digging and super and these like subterranean structures and going into the earth to escape artillery, which is still dominant to this day in the Russo-Ukrainian war, as we've seen indirect artillery fire, the preponderance of steel. Um, as Stephen Biddle calls it, uh, uh, the uh, the modern system of cover-based land combat uh, that he references in his book, Military Power. That system and dynamic really gels in the First World War, particularly between 16 and 18, and hasn't changed in essence since. Um, the only really, you know, you get modulations in some forms of technology like electronic communications and, uh, and cyber warfare and the like, um, maybe drone technology and, and autonomous systems. But ultimately, as far as like, the mechanisms that are in place, the problems that are faced by the Royal Engineers and by the, the commanders and infantry, uh, the way that the fire, you know, the fire teams work, uh, those concepts, all that's gelled in the First World War and during this period in particular. Um, so they're escaping, um, uh, uh, the shell fire using the chalk to their advantage, the, the, the soil, um, and the topography, trying to master the topography for observation. And secondly, uh, man-made topography. So in this case, we have the sutrans or the underground passageways that were developed um, uh, during Aras's uh, medieval history uh, to escape sieges um, and to uh, store uh, supplies um, for and provisions throughout uh, the town's infrastructure. And, um, and also, uh, so with that in, in place, 
the, the Germans had some of uh, access to some of them when they were approaching in 1914, and uh, they used them too. For the British, uh, when they take over the sector in early 1916, they really go to town and expanding and refining it and making it actually something that can achieve the kind of victory that you see in 1917. Our initial success. I'll, I'll temper that. Right, right. So, of course, like as as the lines move forward, is that is is that largely why the the Royal Engineers had had difficulty main, uh, maintaining that that tempo with, with the Arras offensive? Right. So, for for, for listeners uh, who may not be um, familiar with uh, uh, a modern military term, is operational tempo, um, and essentially the rate of operations, your rate of advance, as it might have been termed uh, uh, um, some time ago, but uh, essentially. For the Royal Engineers, their problem. Now, I'm going to credit this to a, a, a very dear and late historian, uh, 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 Rob Thompson, um, who just passed away uh, last week. Uh, but he wrote a fantastic. Uh, he was a scholar of British logistics and the Royal Engineers. And while Michael uh, uh, got me started in my, and, and created my nascent interest, expanded my nascent interest in the in, in the Royal Engineers, Rob's work um, is is just stunning. Um, and as a tribute to him for this podcast, um, I'd like to say that his work, uh, Mud, Blood and Wood, British Logistical Engineering and the Battle of Third Eat, which is interestingly in a, in an interdisciplinary journal. It's actually in a geographic, uh, journal. Um, I can send you the link. It's published by Springer. Um, so it's, it's very obscure, unfortunately. Um, but it's accessible. Uh, he wrote a, uh, a chapter in an anthology looking at history and, and geography and topography. And this work applied to 30 was addressing how the Royal Engineers, how the British PEF needed more sappers to combat not only the, the outrageous uh, uh, downpour that, that occurred, uh, the, the deluge of 30, which even British forecasters and even, you know, Belgian and French forecasters uh, saw as, as uh, usual an anomaly. Um, and then the devastation of the Royal Artillery. No offense, Spencer. But uh, um, the works of Jonathan Bailey uh, in uh, Petty Griffith's The British Fighting Methods, British Fighting Methods in the Great War, which came out in 98, and then uh, The Dynamics of Military Revolution by uh, um, uh, McGregor, uh, by uh, Williams and Murray and um, uh, uh, um, McGregor Knox. Jonathan Bailey is a Royal Artillery uh, historian, and he talks about how the RA essentially fired missions of annihilation. So you have this massive saturation in the case of the, the week preceding Eras, it was called Leidensvoker by the Germans, week of suffering for to 8 April. And they just annihilate and saturate, especially now with the quantity that they can get of shells, annihilate the ground to soften it. And the problem this causes is that it makes the ground impassable. So you really need engineers to be prepared for that in order to cross that ground and maintain that tempo, uh, which makes the initial success even the more all the more impressive given the uh, of the situation. Um, and I'll finally say that um, annihilation versus neutralization. The RA eventually stopped these long, prolonged bombardments and instead focus on concentrating, stunning the enemy in place and barraging for, you know, as little as two hours, sometimes half an hour in order to achieve its, uh, an object. And that's still used today. Um, so instead of laying siege, annihilation, you get neutralization fire uh, in 1918. But they haven't learned this yet. And this is one of those things that illustrates how the learning curve is actually, as uh, Spencer has pointed out in previous podcasts uh, elsewhere, a learning process um, and one that is not smooth. Speaking of, of 
smooth op- op- um, operation. So in your chapter, you describe the many, many tiers and like subdivisions of the Royal Engineers. Now, if, if they weren't all working together um, explicitly, like d- does that, does that show like a level of specialization, which means that it was, it was a successful um, organization of effort by, by the Royal Engineers, like breaking up into so many tiers and, and, and smaller groups um, on, on, on the battlefield. Sure. Uh, I actually think that it, it was an advantage personally uh, for my, you know, in, in my assessments. Um, however, actually I'm doing my, my, my PhD on uh, doing an inter-allied comparison of the British, French and, and, and American engineering force and how they approach this. And the Americans and French are, are, are more similar, but uh, the Americans borrow from both. But I think um, uh, the, the British system of keeping a large tent, as it were, and then having divisions uh, uh, staffed with a, uh, a chief royal engineer to coordinate. So you're not only coordinating the, the field craft sappers, but you're also coordinating um, the pioneer infantry, as well as uh, all the technical aspects, including the, the royal engineer signal service. So each division has a signal company. And then any attached tunnelers from coming from army or core, the field survey companies, which are mapping out the fires and the, the, the landscape to be able to do it, uh, predicted artillery fire, um, indirect predicted artillery fire. Uh, all of this going on, camouflage service, all the resources, the light tramway companies that are bringing from their division railhead to the, to the, to the frontline fire trenches, the depots. Um, all the, of this network, all these networks, or this vast network, I should say, um, being coordinated by a single core offers an advantage, in my opinion, um, and especially when it comes to C3 or uh, command and control and communications um, and lends an advantage. Uh, um, also, you have uh, the chemical operations under the purview of the, of the CRE of a division or corps, so that coordination is very smooth. Mm-hmm. Access to stores as well, supplies and the like. So you wrote here that um, the Battle of Arras uh, would prove itself to be a clear marker on the rough road to victory for the Royal Engineers. Um, how how was that? How how did that come about? So I, I would so first off, uh, Jim Smithson. I thank him for um, his excellent work on on Arras. Uh, I know you've had him. You've interviewed him, and he's discussed much about uh, uh, the French Army, and he's. Uh, headed in that direction. But when I met, uh, originally reached out to him uh, when I uh, started my career in Arras, um, I, I took an interest in Arras, the battle, because of where it sits. As Spencer has pointed out, it is a rough year. Um, I'm also very drawn to the the static uh, uh, phase of the war more than, I, than even the mobile phase. I find the, this sort of domesticity of, of living in a subterranean uh, fighting uh, situation uh, uh, fascinating. Um, but essentially the, 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 his original work on Arras, um, uh, pulled me in. And, uh, he was the one that pointed out that not only was Arras, uh, uh, you know, more than just Vimy Ridge, it was also more than uh, a diversion uh, assault. It had its own, uh, pursuit objectives, and not just by Haig and Third Army. He was received from GQG and the French. Uh, so while it wasn't the main thrust of the spring offensive, it had, uh, uh, its own, um, pursuit objectives to capture. Alex, it's all explained in the book. Um, but essentially, uh, uh, the, uh, the way that it marks victory, um, uh, uh, it's a qualified statement, of course, um, is that they use the lessons, um, of the Psalm 
they put they apply them put them into practice um i believe there's a scholar studying with phil uh um uh with dr william philpot uh at king's is doing is basically the learning curve at aras i don't know where that um uh dissertation is at the moment but um uh it's a it's a you're, you've got lessons clearly being applied you can see that there's there's this growth you can see that there's great specialization and the BEF is grappling and finally stepping up from being a junior partner in 1915 and 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 being barely able to uh, uh manage you know offensive capability there to now being a senior partner and carrying the burden of, of battle uh, of offensive operations into 1917 um and so this four mile advance that we're talking about, the initial breach, is the largest lunge, that, the, the single greatest lunge uh, uh, terrain wise that occurs in, um, in the war. Um, and it's not matched until the Germans attack in, in, in uh, March of 1918. Mm -hmm. So they must be doing something right, even considering the fact that the Germans poorly apply uh, their defense in depth concept and they're still, you know, they, they retreated to prepare defensive positions prior. It's still, you know, it's still vastly difficult to get even a breach like this. Um, and so while they've, the BEF demonstrates now that they've mastered the break in, they can't master the breakout for, you know, and, and turn their gains into strategic success. And that just plagues all the armies through most of this war and makes it such a fascinating, uh, field to study from an operational perspective. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for the, um, I'll, you can give me that link to Rob Thompson's, Rob Thompson's work. I'll definitely, um, look into that. Uh, I'll, I'll also send you the other works that I listed, uh, uh for your readers. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll put that into the, um, the episode notes and, um, folks will, will really enjoy reading that. Thank you so much, Alexander. Appreciate oh, thank it. you. Right. All right. James, thank you so much for your, uh, for your patience, um, last, very much not least. Um, so 1917, okay, is very, of course, um, most folks would immediately uh, bring up the Battle of Third Ypres, um, commonly known as Passchendaele. So this is where um, uh, James Taub, uh focused his, his chapter, which is deserving of all praise, the 33rd Division at Polygon Wood, uh, 25th through 27th of September, 1917. James, what brought this particular division to your attention? Yeah. So, um, much like, uh, um, uh, we talked about when we did the French episode a few weeks ago, it's through roundabout ways. I did my master's degree in Glasgow and, uh, I focused heavily on the Cameronians, the Scottish rifles. And through that, uh, I became interested in a lot of their battalions and two of their battalions are in the 33rd division. And have particularly interesting experiences through the war that uh, I'd be really interested to continue following. Uh, and then you slowly start to realize that I was interested in them. Recently, there's been some literature, some diaries, all that that have come out on particularly the 1st Battalion. You have uh, the battalion commander uh, chaplain's uh, letters have been published. I think it was in 2014, 2015. But the 33rd Division is one of the most written about divisions uh, in the war, and not in the sense of a historical secondary source perspective, but this is the, the division of the 2nd Royal Welsh Fusiliers with uh, the War of the Infantry New, with all the famous poetic officers that serve in that battalion, as well as, uh, and I'll be selfish here, my favorite 
uh, enlisted man's account of the British Army of the War, Frank Richards, Old Soldiers Never Die. So you've got um, all of these folks that have written uh, from within the division, but not uh, a lot of academic focus on the division's actions and uh, their studies. Having walked this battlefield, it is one of the few places, uh, un- unfortunately, the jumping off line and a lot of, a lot of where uh, the fighting in the rear of the British front line happens is now a highway. But that area in between Polygon Wood and the Menon Road is is pretty intact. Um, doesn't resemble the shell craters that it did in 1917, but it's a place you can visit and visualize uh, some of those actions. Uh, so I, I was particularly interested in, in this division because it was something that was accessible. Uh, a lot of us wrote these chapters during the pandemic, um, and uh, and uh, at the time I was living in Washington D.C., so uh, I had access to a lot of their documents, a lot of their their sources, and I think it's an action that is overly stereotypical of the First World War, if that makes any sense. In that you have uh, everything that historians try to dissuade as not happening happen. So you've got tanks, Germans with flamethrowers, guys in kilts, uh, Victoria Cross award winners, um, massed machine guns, back and forth seesaw attacks like the 1979 version of the All Quiet on the Western Front movie or the more recent adaption. All these things we say didn't really happen. This is the action word. They all do happen. Um, so I, I think that it was the more and more I read uh, the battalion war diaries and individual accounts. I was like, this is just ridiculous. There is, there is, there is so much that is ridiculous and over the top, uh, to use a horrible World War I metaphor about the third battle of Ypres and these campaigns. But this is one of those, there's no way that all of these things come together. Um, and lastly, I think that this action is great if you want to look at a tactical level study of a British division in action in 1917. I think this is one of the better ways in which you could highlight how the British Army as a whole was operating through and how they were learning and adapting what they had not to look forward to, but to expect in the spring of 1918, as well as where uh, they had adapted since the Psalm of 1916. Uh, so this is why I decided let's let's head into the 33rd division. So before we get into the the actions at Polygon Wood, how had the 33rd division performed up until then on the Western yeah. Front? So they're a really interesting group because they are a new army division, but they go through several changes in their order of battle. They have old regulars. One of their brigade is uh, 19 Brigade, uh, was one of the original brigades of the BEF that goes out. Uh, this, this includes Second Royal Welsh Fusiliers, uh, and the First Cameronians, I, one of my favorite battalions. Their nickname, uh, among other battalions of the regiment, was God's Own. Um, which uh, I don't know if that's as much of a harkening back to the Presbyterian origins of the re- origins of the regiment, as much as as a regular BF battalion, they escape all of the worst battles until July of 1916. There, uh, there's constant references from other members of the division and other battalions of the regiment that these guys miss loose. They're not at first deep. They're down around Armentieres uh, during all of those battles uh, in late 1914. They're not heavily engaged at the Marne. They're in reserve at Mons. Uh, so their first real major battle is High Wood in July of 1916. Uh, you then have a bunch of territorials, includes the 5th, 6th Scottish Rifles, uh, one uh, battalion of Highlanders, the 9th Battalion of the Highland Light Infantry, the Glasgow Highlanders, the only high, truly Highland battalion of uh, that regiment. 
Uh, and then you have new army units. You've got uh, battalions of the King's Royal Rifle Corps, all of this, all coming together to sort of pick out all of these different social dynamic backgrounds. And it's a national division. I really like that you have units like the Cameroonians or the Highlight Night Infantry that highlight the Scottish aspect of these divisions that uh, that veterans love to call back to and say, you know, Scottish soldiers alongside Northern English battalions, battalions from Liverpool, battalions from London. So it is truly a national uh, organization. I'll also say that one of the books that we didn't mention that Michael wrote is uh, one of the other reasons I was really interested because Michael published the letters of an officer of the 9th Glasgow Highlanders, Walter Coates, a few years ago. Um, and he is a participant in this action. So you have a lot of this great literature to go around. They first really see action uh, as scattered. They'll, individual battalions, individual brigades will see light actions throughout 1914-15. As a division, their first real engagement will be, again, the Highwood in the middle of July 1916, where you see a very similar action uh, as will play out here in 1917. But it's them crossing over open fields, getting into Highwood, establishing a foothold, getting counterattacked and, and driven out. Uh, they will fight uh, later on through the rest of the Battle of the Somme. And then at the Battle of Arras in 1917, they'll be just outside of Malchi uh, and will attack um, the Tunnel Trench later on. Um, and then their next major engagement coming up is this battle, the third battle of, of Ypres and going in on the 24th of September, 1917. All right. So in, in short, and, and James, you can go short so we can entice the listeners to make sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Read the chapter. Um, what happens at, uh, near Polygon Wood between the 25th and 27th yeah. of September? So the best way I would describe this is imagine you have just accepted a new job and you're ready to go. You've been looking forward to it to a while and you walk in in the middle of a project that's going to hell in a handbasket. And the person before you says, bye, good luck. That's the action uh, that the 33rd walks into. They take over the line from the 23rd Division, which had pushed up onto this ridge uh, with the northern flank uh, at the southwestern end of Polygon Wood, uh, their southern flank on the Menin Road, and they're immediately counterattacked. The 23rd Division's general staff uh, hasn't even handed over to the 33rd Division staff when this counterattack first uh, goes in. As well, their normal divisional commander, General Pinney, very, very famous uh, general officer referred to by a lot of the great war poets and literates of the war, isn't there. He's on leave. So they're under a command of uh, a temporary officer, General Wood. And it is uh, a defensive action against Germans who have pre-planned. The Germans know that there's going to be a divisional changeover. That And that's the prime spot, as Michael has pointed out in a lot of his works on various trench raids. This is when you want to try to hit the enemy, when they're confused, when they're disorganized, when this switching out of units in the front lines happened. Uh, Luckily for the 33rd, you've got interesting terrain features which help navigate this battle. Obviously, Flanders is below the water table. Everybody, I think a lot of our listeners will understand, you know, that idea of streams and creeks becoming overflowing. There are individual ponds. There's the Rudelbeck stream. All of this cut horizontally across the front of, uh, or perpendicularly, excuse me, across the front of the 33rd Division. And they're going to play into how the Germans who are assaulting them file into the division. And it's also going to result in this battle that is pockets of British soldiers holding out a la German Spring Offensive March 1918. And 
the British are trying to the 33rd trying to figure out how do we counterattack? How do we stop this? How do we put pressure on? And it's going to highlight the strengths that the British Army have been learning since the battles of the Somme that will play in through the rest of the war, including concentrated mashed machine gun batteries, uh, highly precise artillery targeting German logistical points before the counterattack goes in, junior officers and NCOs taking charge of pockets of isolated guys and holding out, knowing that as long as we're uh, causing trouble in the German rear, eventually we'll get relieved. Eventually other troops will come up. Uh, so it it plays into all that, and it plays in as well to the nationalistic aspect of the history of the war, because the Australians dominate the narrative of the Battle of Polygon Wood, and to the north of the 33rd Division will be the 5th Australian Division. They love to tell the story uh, in Australia of, you know, this attack would have gone – was almost ruined, and it would have gone so much easier if the British hadn't uh, been overrun just to the south of us and – the 5th Australian Division it would have to change their southern front to help the British. Really looking into this action, there are two Australian battalions, 57th and 58th, that do take part. They're at the southernmost end of Polygon Wood at an area that's now called Black Watch Corner. If you go to visit, there's a big monument to the Black Watch from their action in 1914 there now. Um, but they don't really go anywhere. They, they hold their line, and it is very, very impressive, very, very important. But there's no shifting of Australian troops to help the British. Um, this is all self-contained among the 33rd Division, and they're able to go and actually follow the Australians, support them in their attack on their southern flank later in, in, on the 26th and 27th of September. So all this really, to me, is a really interesting highlight of how the German counteroffensive doctrine um, – had, which had been developed through 1617, is slowly starting to meet its match and be adapted against by the British. Right. All right. Um, if I read the chapter correctly, it seems the 33rd recovered um, pretty quickly, pretty solidly. And I think you've talked about some of some of the reasons why um, mm -hmm. right after the, the German counterattack. So um, in, anything else that you would attribute uh, to to the, the, the quick recovery of the 33rd Division? I just I think that uh, – read the chapter, first off, <laughs> um, and read the rest of the book because I, I do, as, as Spencer said, I, I love that we can get into the financial history, the logistical history, ammunition, political, all that understanding of the BEF in 1917. And when you read the book fully, thankfully my chapter is towards the end, so you can skip it if you want. But it, it's really interesting to play in to this idea of all of these things coming together. But the fact that um, you have a, a divisional machine gun officer in Graham Seaton Hutchinson, who is not a great character, um, does some pretty uh, uh, leading towards fascist activity in the interwar years. But during the war, he's commanding the machine gun battalion of the 33rd. And the, the, the ability for him to understand he can line up all of his uh, divisional machine guns, all of these Vickers guns, and just have his guys hold down the trigger all day, that factors into this idea of logistics have started to been worked on. It's not 1950, 1916 anymore. Constant supplies are coming up. This idea that it is not an offensive battle, that the British are learning how to adapt to these German counteroffensive tactics. Uh, counteroffensive operations that have smashed offensives on the Somme. They had smashed certain offensives even at Ross earlier in 1917. 
And just to highlight that, uh, there's one Victoria Cross awarded to the division uh, during this action. And while I believe it's around 80 Victoria Crosses are awarded during the whole 30 campaign, the one that's uh, 60 of them uh, are for storming German bunkers, you know, throwing grenades in, flushing out the Germans. This one is for running ammunition to the front line. Um, it's by a member of the 9th Glasgow Highlanders. So it is it is this idea that the British are also learning how to adapt not only to take on the offensive, but how to adapt to what comes after and keep that momentum. Alexander talked about the tempo. Keep that tempo up even in the face of potentially losing the initiative. And in this case, it's over the night and into the morning of the 24th, 25th, and then uh, 26th of September. But it's not one of these instances that we had seen previously of the British, of a British division, a British brigade taking a position, being hit by a counterattack, and being out for the count for a few weeks. This is them able to adapt and stay on the front line and actually get somewhat close to the objective they were originally intended to take. <clears throat> wow. And that, and that shows like a, a highly adaptive um, army, like a, a highly adaptive leaders, um, very experienced now. Like these, these guys have been around, they've been doing this for a while. So fantastic. Gentlemen, one, one last Short question um, for all of you, and it's something that I don't think I paid enough attention to, and I'm glad that James brought up, is that this book was largely written <laughs> during the pandemic. Am I correct in that? Absolutely, yeah. Wow. <laughs> probably, probably except for me, because I, I wrote – that chapter was finished in 2019. Okay. And then I just – and I have, I have to I, say that I think for most everyone else, absolutely, yes. And I have to say that the uh, um, the National Archives project to digitize and then put online the war diaries and then make them uh, uh, acceptable for free with a certain limit for each day, but not a not a complete limit, um, made this project possible at least for for me. Uh, uh, based in Baltimore, was uh, quarantined and, and and doing this. Right. Wow. I'm, I'm sure for the others too. Oh, fantastic. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, I, I know like, um, th th you know, like we think of hardships, like certainly like we weren't, we weren't physically ill or, or, or anything, at least as far as I know dur during the, the pandemic, but, um, just amazing. Like, like a, another added, um, another added rather large obstacle in, in the way of, of seeing this project, um, come to light. So, so fantastic. And, and if I can, I like, well, thank thank you, gentlemen, so much for for persevering and and sticking with and and seeing this through. It's, it's a fantastic book, um, and I think the listeners from what, what you folks have heard here and in, in, uh, in this discussion, it, it, go out and get the darkest year. I'll certainly put it up on the episode notes where you can um, buy it. it. Like you will not um, you will not be disappointed. Any any closing thank thoughts, gentlemen? Well, Alex, I'll I'll yeah, Alexander, yeah, James go. and then James, or you guys, James, can James can go first. Oh, well, I would just say, uh, I, I just want to throw in something that was talked about earlier as someone who's much more on the public history side of this, the Helion's whole catalog, A, has, has taken away a lot of my paycheck monthly, <laughs> um, but this idea of, of, uh, I'm very looking forward to, I've Blanking on the author, but the new Macedonian campaign book is should be in the hands yeah. of Royal Mail on its way to me right now. But um, but 
uh, not only that, I mean, working at the Museum of the American Revolution, the Reason the Revolution series as well, it is such an amazing uh, publisher in terms of its ability to take these dense academic topics and make it readable, make it enjoyable, which is something that not yeah. everybody can do. Um, so ha uh, having Helion's, uh, whether it be the Wolverhampton First World War series or any of its other series as well, is something that I would love to see more pu uh, publishers do. But right now, Helion has the monopoly on it. Um, and and uh, so... I hope Michael enjoys his, his new house, which I think all of us are somewhat paying for in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I always remark, like I, I, I was, you know, whenever I get a, a Helion book, like I always take them to my family and I'm always like, like, Oh my God, like feel this book, feel this book, like feel how heavy it is guys. It's awesome. You know, it's like, I, I love it. Um, they're just like, like I said earlier, like the, the, the physical weight and, and the, the density of the book, I think speaks to like the amount of information that's inside. Um, and, and they're just beautiful books. The maps are so well done. Um, beautifully done. Alexander, you're, um, you had something. Yeah. If you're, well, if, just to close uh, that, mention that point. Um, if you're a bibliophile, definitely you'll enjoy, uh, healing and company books. Um, I was going to say that, uh, when you were talking about how we were writing this during the pandemic behind me are my, uh, is my collection of, um, British, uh, divisional histories, a complete set as my, as far as I've been managed, I've managed to, to gather. And most of them are, it, it made me think about the fact that for a lot of these fellows writing in the, you know, 1919 through the, uh, the first a few years of the twenties, you know, they were living through influenza as, or, um, uh, uh, uh the flu as, uh, as they were writing these, these, these works. Um, and many also as, as, uh, some young, some of them as young scholars, um, or getting started on academic careers to, to, to do military history in some cases, um, which is a nod to Spencer, uh, for, uh, in his books, um, allowing, uh, emerging scholars and to, to publish, uh, work, um, myself included, uh, into these collections, um, and to, to make a contribution and, uh, and to, trust in our scholarship. So a lot of, it's not typically the tradition, uh, or at least hasn't become, hasn't emerged as such, um, <clears throat> over the, over the decades, but, uh, uh, Spencer is a maverick in that regard and a, and a great one. Oh, that's fantastic. That's, yeah. Thank you, Alex. And just, just if I can just add a, a comment is, um, one thing I, I am in some ways, I've, I've, I'm the luckiest man in military history because I, I, and this is a, a genuine comment. You know, I've edited uh, four of these books now. Some some authors have appeared in every volume. Michael, you're one of them. Um, but in other case, I always like to try and add new um, authors to it. And just the response from authors has just been incredible. Um, a, a joy to work with everybody, including everybody on this podcast. And I learned so much as an editor because the, we are, we can dive in on so many topics. And it's just it's a I, the reason I keep doing these books is because I enjoy them so much. And and uh, I hope that they. The level of effort, the care, the attention to detail, the passion for the subject is evident in the books. And, uh, you know, as, as has been mentioned from the fact that Helium provides so many images, that they provide wonderful color maps, that the authors are so engaged and there's so much opportunity to write. Um, it's a pleasure. And uh, Helium's got the monopoly at the moment. But if there's any publishers out there listening, there is a market for this kind of military history. So, Indeed. <laughs> so see what you can do. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, well, 
Well, gentlemen, thank you so very much for, again, for taking time out of, out of your evenings um, and, and out of your afternoons to, to come on this, um, on this podcast. I, I greatly appreciate it. It was a pleasure to read the book. It's, um, it's a pleasure to, to, to just sit back and ask a question and, and let you um, guys do your thing and, and listen to, um, to your passion come out as well. Uh, so I, 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 I think I said it to everybody who comes on the podcast, but, um, and I've said it, uh, I'll certainly say it again here, like any projects that you have, um, going on, anything that you'd like to share, um, please know like the, the door to this podcast is, is always open to you guys. Like anytime you guys want to come and talk about anything like obscure general, you know, very detailed doors, always, always open. So thank you so, so much for, for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you very much.